Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you with the first recorded podcast of the new year. And again, Happy New Year to you. And thank you for being part of this community. And today we have an interesting show. It's really, you know, something I think that we ought to be thinking about, which is is this question, is debt a problem? And and I know, of course, the answer is generally yes, but we normally focus on public debt. In other words, national debt. But should we be focusing on private debt? That's really the question that we're going to have our expert uh, address today. In the meantime, let's go back and review some basics. Let's talk about debt. Because at some point, In your life, someone has told you that you need to pay it all off. You know, on TV, you see the likes of Susie Orman and Dave Ramsey telling everybody in the world that you have to get rid of all that debt before you can get anything else. And I will tell you this, they're not entirely wrong because they are, you know, listen, they're just talking to the masses, right? The masses aren't a group of sophisticated real estate investors like you who are thinking about using leverage in a very smart way in distinguishing between different kinds of debt. I mean, Robert Kiyosaki, of course, uh, in his books, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Cashflow Quadrant, famously made that distinction between good debt and bad debt in his writings. He said that, you know, the things that help, you know, grow your business and uh, ultimately put money in your uh, pocket, those things are good, right? That's good debt. And then there's bad debt. That's the stuff that, you know, credit card debt to buy a TV that you can't uh, afford. That's bad debt. Of course, it gets more complicated than that, right? I mean, we've had this conversations in Wealth Formula Network a number of times where we say, well, a mortgage, a mortgage on your house, your personal residence. Now, is that good debt? Is that bad debt? Now that's that's a little bit tricky because by definition, the Kiyosaki definition, uh, it's not good debt because, you know, a mortgage on your personal residence isn't really helping put any money in your pocket, right? But on the other hand, paying off your mortgage and having all that money in your house makes it essentially what I call dead money, right? It's not anything you can really do. It's just sitting there's equity in your house And that has the additional problem where you become a bigger target of creditors. It becomes a big, you know, you get a big target on your on your house for anything that could go wrong. So anyway, it's not as cut and dry as as you know you might think. There's even on on the standpoint of mortgages, it's not completely cut and dry. At any rate, what we do know 
is that personal debt right now is skyrocketing. It's not something we really think about, but it's something that tends to be overshadowed by the, you know, the behemoth national debt problem we have. And my guest on this week's Wealth Formula podcast, Richard Vag. Now, he's saying that the real focus should not be necessarily on that national debt, not that it's not important, but the real problem, the real calamity in the makings is this issue of personal debt that is now going over the 160% of GDP mark in the United States. So a really interesting listen. This is a uh, conversation I really enjoyed uh, with Richard because not only is he you know, a really smart guy and a you know, banking expert in, in, in all that, but he's also an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur. So it's good to hear his take on that. So when we come back, Richard Vag on private debt. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Richard Vag. Now, Richard is an interesting guy because he started out, you know, as a, a very effective entrepreneur, a venture capitalist. He's a co-founder and chairman of CEO of an electrical company, a natural gas company, and a co-founder and CEO of two national consumer banks. Now, what's unique about Richard is now he serves as a Pennsylvania Secretary of Banking and Securities. So usually when we get those kinds of positions, you know, it's seems like a lot of those people end up being academics and not necessarily having real world experience. So Richard, uh, so excited to have you on the show today. It's a real honor to be here. Thank you. Now, Richard, you also wrote this book, The Case of Debt Jubilee, which I assume is really, you know, making the thesis of what we're going to talk today, but maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, you know, for our audience, for my audience, let's start with this question here, because I think the fundamental idea uh, that I think you're talking about is this, maybe this this concern uh, being overseen that it's not necessarily the you know national debt or sovereign debt that we should be concerned about, but more private debt uh, that that we should be looking at. Maybe just because you know we have so many people who are not 
economists, maybe you can kind of create for us a, a sort of infrastructure for thinking about that before we kind of dive in. Absolutely. And, and thanks for uh, teeing that up. But yeah, we study this pretty carefully and private debt, which is the debt of businesses and individuals, uh, now totals, you know, some $35 trillion. So it's quite a bit higher than government debt, which is in the $25 trillion range, uh, growing rapidly, of course. But private debt has been the bigger, had the bigger effect on economic outcomes. And to put it in perspective, right after World War II, let's say around 1950, private debt as a percent of GDP, which is a way to think about it through time, was less than 50%. And today it's about 160%. So private debt, the average amount of debt that the average household or business carries has tripled in that period. And that's weighing down a lot of folks. And it's mortgage debt, obviously, but you know, more recently it's been a huge growth in student loan debt, credit card debt, buy now, pay later debt, automobile lending debt, you name it. And it's it's one of the things that impedes economic growth. So let's back up when we talk about, uh, you know, we often hear about the concern of, you know, national debt. And tell me why you're perhaps less concerned about national debt than, you know, traditionally we, you know, we hear from, say, from politicians. Well, it's not that we're not concerned about it. It's that we're less concerned about it. We've studied the debt of over 50 countries going back almost to World War II in most cases. And that's really about 90 plus percent of world GDP and world debt. So we've studied very actively debt trends everywhere across the globe. Increases in government debt rarely cause any issues, if you think about it empirically. Rapid increases in private debt bring financial crisis. The crisis in the United States at the end of the 1980s was brought about by junk bond debt and commercial real estate debt. Obviously, our 0708 problem came about by a trip, a doubling of uh, mortgage debt from 5 trillion to 10 trillion. So we can find example after example after example a private debt growth bringing financial crisis. Uh, you know, when you're in a large developed country, you really are hard pressed to find examples where growth in government debt creates much of an issue. And one of the reasons for that is government debt and spending actually, government, you know, to use the colloquial term, government can print money to pay back its own debt. Sure. And so, you know, it doesn't create the repayment crisis uh, that it obviously does in the private sector. Now, let me ask you this. One thing that I've heard in interviewing some economists lately is that savings rates have actually gone up. Is that true? And if savings rates go up and household savings rates, do we look at the debt as people who essentially are not paying down debt, but they just, their savings rates are going up? How how does that work? Well, I think we've had a one-time phenomenon here that's really without precedent you know, pretty much ever in history. We've had the government spend, and this is a fiscal congressional act, and we've seen it in the the CARES Act and the more recent acts where we gave Americans across the country checks for $1,400 and $1,200, and we gave additional child support, uh, checks for additional child support. That released on the order of $3 trillion in additional spending 
into the economy. So, you know, in one respect, the answer is, of course, our savings rate is yeah. up. Yeah. The government just spent, you know, $3 trillion, which is its debt, but the private sector's asset. So savings rates are, are, are up. That'll get depleted through time as fiscal programs disappear. Mm-hmm. Is that, you know, I'm sure this is not where you're leading, but it just makes me think, is that an argument for the universal basic income? <laughs> well, some folks, some <laughs> folks would say yes. You know, that's its own discussion. But, and, you know, they, what it would suggest to you is there's capacity for that. And yeah, I think, you know, a judicious, I don't, I'm not a person who spends a lot of time advocating that kind of a program, but I don't, you know, I don't complain a lot when others do. I think their heart's in the right place and there might be an approach that works. But in terms of capacity, absolutely demonstrates that we have capacity. You know, then what other kinds of debt relief policies do you think would be effective to alleviate private debt? I mean, short of, you know, the government handing out money and and getting people to, you know, to pay it off. Well, I think you have to be careful here. And this is where I, I think, you know, it, it behooves us to think carefully about this because some folks like presidential candidate and Senator Bernie Sanders and Senator Elizabeth Warren and others have advocated with the best intentions, wiping out all student debt, which right now totals almost $1.8 trillion. Sure. And yet others have said, you know, I think with uh, plenty of justification that there's an unfairness to that, because what about the folks that were responsible, that did pay down their debt, that did forego the new car and the vacations and pay down their debt? So, you know, I think we have to think about the fairness dimension of this. And folks may remember that it was kind of in the Obama years that right around the big crisis that Obama proposed a certain kind of uh, debt relief relative to mortgage. And a number of folks uh, uh, objected to that quite loudly and the formation of the Tea Party came out of that. And again, it was just this idea of we're going to do blanket X for somebody that certainly will help others, but it will be unfair to many who were more responsible. So the book that uh, you're kind enough to uh, to be visiting with me about today, I try to be thoughtful about that. In the case of student debt, for example, I propose a program where if you make a certain number of payments, let's say eight years worth of payments, and also you do a certain amount of community service, let's call it a thousand hours or 800 hours, that would qualify you for, you know, a buy down of some or all of your remaining student debt. So I'm trying to kind of find a middle ground between just giving stuff away and nevertheless trying to help folks that are willing to work for that help. Yeah, it seems like maybe tie in with some of this infrastructure stuff, too, or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. well, you know, there's a lot of room to be creative here. And then, you know, I think I think it's just keeping in mind that, yes, people do need an accelerated way to dispose of some of this burden, but we have to be fair about it. When you break those numbers down, because, you know, obviously the 100, I think you said 160% of GDP uh, for private debt, uh, how much of it is coming from mortgages? For example, you know, obviously in in my world, we have a tremendous amount of debt. You know, we tend to think of it as good debt uh, because it's, you know, cash flow is covering the debt and mortgages. And in a way, the government is doing us a favor by, you know, creating inflation, washing out the value of our debt. 
what's the breakdown on that? I mean, how much is this is like, you know, personal debt versus a, an increase in leverage of, you know, investors? Uh, because presumably when you talk about private debt, you're including, you know, the 30, $40 million, uh, you know, mortgage that we've got from Fannie and Freddie on, you know, on a $45 million property and that kind of thing. Well, it's, it breaks down like this. If there's a roughly 35 trillion of it, about half of it is business debt. About half of it is individual or household debt. So let's call that, you know, 16, 17 trillion that's household debt. Well, about 11 trillion of that is mortgage debt. So you can see, you know, the 800 pound gorilla, anytime you think about private sector debt is, is mortgage debt. And that's household mortgage debt. On the commercial side, it's about six trillion in what I would call commercial real estate debt. And that encompasses everything from, you know, interim construction lending to permanent mortgages on commercial properties. So any way you cut it, the big factor in private debt, and if you add the individual and commercial real estate debt together, that's about half of all private sector debt. And you are correct in saying that most of that is, is very productive. However, we do get into these periods as we did in 07 and 08, where evaluations become unrealistic because of an accelerated uh, schedule of lending. You know, mortgage lending increased from 2002 to 2007. Mortgage lending went from 5 trillion to 10 trillion. You know, a blind man should have and could have seen that. And yet the Fed didn't. And um, uh, so there, you can get in trouble in real estate lending. We're not in such a period right now, I will tell you. Uh, but it is an area you can get in trouble if you're not mindful. Got it. So I guess the uh, I guess the next question I, I, is for me is like, we're not in trouble right now, per se, on the mortgage side. What kind of triggers and time are we looking at? Uh, what, what kind of warnings are you looking at to say going from we've got a problem to, you know, straight up economic calamity? Well, it's not a, it's not subtle and it's not hard to detect. Yeah. You know, I think what we do and, and, and I go into this in the book. And I also have, you know, a web service that, that covers this. But if you look at any of these categories of debt and you divide it into GDP, you get, a, that's a way to look at it through time. And if real estate debt or any other category in ratio to GDP stays pretty constant or grows slowly, uh, you don't have a problem. Uh, we would estimate that if that category increases let's call it 30 or 40% to GDP in a four or five year period, you got yourself a problem and you just kind of, you can slice that into five year, you know, one year intervals and see that if it's growing more than four or 5% a year for two or three years in a row, fasten your seatbelt. And that's a pretty easy computation to make. And in all of our analysis of crisis, whether here in the United States, China, Japan, elsewhere, it's never a subtle movement that you have to have a microscope to detect. These are big, obvious problems. You know, if you look at the housing market right now, I mean, you, we have had a huge, uh, huge uh, change, right? So what, why, or why would you say that we're not necessarily there right now? Well, several reasons. One of them is that our mortgage debt to GDP has stayed pretty fine. It's ticked up a little bit here in the last year, 
um, but not enough to be alarming. Secondly, if you look at the building and the sale of new homes or the sale of existing homes, which is very easy data to get from the St. Louis Fed or elsewhere, you'll see that the levels that we are now uh, running, uh, you know, kind of our run right now is far, far below 2005, 2006, 2007. You know, I think what has happened here is that our inventory of homes for sale was at a, you know, on a rate basis on an all at an all time low. You know, the inventory of new unsold homes in 06, 07 was let's call it 2.7 million homes. Today it's 1.3 million homes. So they're just, they're just even before the pandemic, pandemic, there just kind of weren't any. We had this phenomenon that we all are very aware of where folks are buying second homes. If they live in the downtown, they're buying homes in the suburbs. If they live in the suburbs, they're buying homes in rural America. We see that throughout Pennsylvania, little towns, you know, inventory they've carried for 50 years is all sold at the moment, but they haven't yet sold their existing home. So you have this phenomenon of a lot of additional home sales that primarily induced by the circumstances of the pandemic on a very low inventory base. But, but we do not have anything close to an oversupply of unsold inventory. Yeah. That's sort of essentially what we're kind of seeing on the market too, is there's just a, you know, there's just still such demand for housing and in, in some of the major markets that we're focused on, there's so many jobs and continuous uh, need for housing that, that that has not outpaced our growth. So let's talk a little bit about one question I have that I've been asking a number of economists and you know other types of financial experts who come on the show. And I'm curious at your thoughts on this, Richard, is that, you know, a lot of the things that we talk about and we've been talking about today, debt and, you know, the potential for that debt to become so burdensome is, you know, has the potential of creating economic calamity. One thing that I'm curious about is we've seen sort of a next level intervention from the Fed and from the government. Do you think that fundamentally the rules of the game have changed in the sense that calamities like the one you're talking about, uh, that there would be such overwhelming government and fed uh, stimulus that you can avoid those types of things going forward. I know it seems kind of ridiculous to suggest, right? This time it's different, right? But on the other hand, we're just seeing really unparalleled interventions. And I'm, I'm curious what your take on that is and how it affects your projections. Well, you know, the Fed has certainly learned how to mitigate the effects leading to a crisis. You know, if you look at 1929, the Fed did everything wrong and the Treasury did everything wrong. And by the time you got to 1987, uh, we had learned a lot and we mitigated it somewhat in Japan. It was having their crisis at essentially the same time, you know, the early nineties was able to mitigate it somewhat. We did even more in, in 2008, you know, when we did a trillion dollar stimulus program. And now what we've done makes all that look very tame in retrospect, you know, we've done, you know, essentially $3 trillion worth of, so we have certainly learned how to mitigate it. However, 
The underlying issue in a financial crisis, and I'm talking, I'm not talking about the pandemic crisis, I'm talking about Japan in the 90s, the U.S. in 07, 1929. The fundamental common denominator of those crises is overcapacity. Too many houses, too many office buildings. In the 1800s, we had a whole bunch of these crises. It was too many railroads. You know, it's, it's uh, some big factor in the economy. The, the Fed can soften the blow, but if you're a builder that's built, you know, a thousand too many homes, you can soften the blow for me, but you can't take care of my fundamental problem. Only time can dissipate that inventory. So we can cushion things a lot, but we, we still have a massive overcapacity problem leading to these things. And you, you don't need to hire construction workers when you got a million too many homes and you don't need to hire them from several years. So employment is impacted. Uh, The banks that made the bad loans have to take the time to recapitalize, to be a little repetitive here, can soften things, but it can't make things go away with a magic wand. It's funny because you were talking about overbuilding. I had this image of uh, all of those vacant, uh, all that vacant real estate in China how are we doing compared to the rest of the world in this area? Quite well. There are problems. We, we look at the seven largest economies in the world with regularity, and that uh, includes China as the world's second largest economy, obviously. And there, the current estimate is that there's 90 million houses and apartments in excess of what they need, empty houses and apartments. China's got a problem. And you know, do we talk about government mitigation? China's government knows how to mitigate problems. That doesn't mean the problems aren't there and they aren't going to have things they're going to have to wrestle through. We see this with Evergrande and Evergrande gets the headlines. There's dozens of other big companies with similar problems. I think two things happen as a result of that. You know, I think, I think China probably manages to keep a bailing wire around the whole thing. But what China can't do is sustain a seven or eight percent growth rate for the next decade. Uh, so, and they have that's what they've been doing historically. Their growth rate probably comes down to low single digits. And since they've been half of global growth, that half kind of disappears. And it's not dissimilar to what happened after 98 in Japan. Japan had been growing, you know, 15, 20 percent forever. And their growth from 1998 to the present is essentially been zero, zero. And that they had just built so much excess into their economy. So I think China is in for a slower growth uh, and we're going to feel that around the world. And we won't feel in in the form of a crisis in the U.S. There hasn't been that much cross-border lending and investment, Uh, but we will feel it uh, in in a marginal slowdown. How does that from a day-to-day perspective, how, how does that kind of slowdown affect, you know, individuals? I mean, what I'm curious on that because it certainly makes sense, you know, if you have this economy that's a behemoth uh, going from 8% down to 2 3% growth, that there's a global slowdown. How are we going to feel that if, if that happens? You know, I think we feel it at the margin, and I think that means that if our growth was going to be 3%. Otherwise it's probably two and a half percent or two and a quarter percent. I think it, I think, I think it's, 
It's not a crisis, uh, but it's, it's, we have less pep in our step. You talk a little bit about a U.S. business death match with China. Will you talk a little bit about what's going on there? Well, you know, China's gotten pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they, uh, you know, they have, they have, you know, I will say China has more than its share problems that it's going to be dealing with. But one of the things China has done is it has targeted investment into areas that matter for the future. And I include in that list genetic engineering, uh, artificial intelligence, supercomputing, um, you know, any number of things that, you know, uh, uh, augmented reality and virtual reality, electric vehicles uh, and the like. And whereas we kind of had the world to ourselves for three or four decades in terms of being so far ahead of the world in technology, we have a bona fide competitor for the first time. And it's going to play out in competition for market share and protocols. And, you know, Huawei is one of our competitors on the telecommunication side. You know, they're going to either have more market share globally or we are. And that's going to play out sooner rather than later. You know, there's there's some astonishing breakthroughs that have happened in genetic engineering. I'm associated with a cancer research group at Penn that has found, in fact, found the cure for certain kinds of cancer through uh, genetic engineering. They go in and modify the DNA of the immune system to attack the body's own tumors. It's called CAR-T. And there are now more trials on CAR-T in China than there are in the United States, even though it was invented right here in little old Philly. So, you know, that's what we're looking at. And so we, we have the first legitimate competitor in my mind that we've had in, you know, half a century or a century. And it's, we're going to have to up our game. Yeah, I mean, the other challenge is they don't really play by the rules, right? And there's so much theft and intellectual property theft and that kind of thing going on. I mean, what do you, what do you see the future of that? Well, you know, you're absolutely right. But I'll tell you, there was a country back in 1800 <laughs> yeah. by, by the name of the United States of America that was stealing, that would, they were government-sanctioned theft of Industrial Revolution secrets from Britain right, right. and left. Right. We weren't going to let, let them sit there without taking some of that uh, for ourselves. So I, I don't think it's unexpected. I think there's a uh, theft between American countries. Uh, you know, there's a certain amount you can do through the court system, but I, I think the answer is as much or more in accelerating our investment in future research. You know, let's, let's speed up our, discovery of new things. So by the time they steal them, they're obsolete. And that's what we really ought to be doing. So so curious about what you think, given what, what you've talked about today with private debt, given what you know about um, uh, the condition of the country coming out of, well, I shouldn't even say coming out of a COVID crisis because it seems like <laughs> there's, there's something else going on and everybody I know seems to have it. Uh, but what do you think's hap- what's going to happen in the next five years as, we, as things start to normalize? Do you see an increase in debt and an inevitable calamity, or do you see interventions potentially being able to help? I'm just asking you to look into a crystal ball for me. 
Well, I think one of the things that's happened, you know, we people don't talk about this very much, but I think there is one concern about rising government debt, and that is that we're going to have even lower inflation and even more inequality. We've seen a dramatic increase in inequality just in the last two years from the three trillion that's been spent. Where did most of that end up? You know, in the pockets of the of the haves rather than the have-nots. And that's a very different concern than most people have had for the last 40 or 50 years. Everybody always thought higher government debt brought high inflation. Well, the opposite is the case. And we don't have to look much further than Japan to know that's true. You know, Japan's government debt is 250% of GDP. Ours is 130%. Their money supply is 211% of GDP. Ours is 91, and they have zero inflation. They have, in fact, they have negative inflation. So I see a world where it's somewhat slower growth. I see a, a world that after we get through pandemic, inflation is back to low inflation. And I see a world where inequality is increased. What that means is a lot of folks that, that do have uh, money have more. You know, I think your, you know, your, your client, your clientele with that are making savvy decisions in real estate will probably do better and better. But societally, I have concerns that we have increased polarization, increased unrest. And I don't think that rises to the level that some folks do, but I do think that makes things very painful for us kind of in the background. Yeah, it's, it's something that a lot of people have brought up. Hopefully, we can come up with some kind of plan for that. Uh, Richard, the uh, book is The Case for a Debt Jubilee, and also you have an illustrated business history of the United States, right? Where can we get Are those available on Amazon? They absolutely are. Fantastic. And then you also have a website. It's uh, uh, com. Tell us what kind of information we can get there. Well, it's just the books that we've published, including the two you just mentioned, and some data sources that really play into some of the discussions we've had today. Fantastic. Richard, thank you so much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast. We'd love to have you on again in the near future. Well, you have a terrific show. Keep doing the great work, and thank you for including me. Thank you. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, I certainly did. I think these uh, you know guys like Richard are really great to have to continue to improve your overall uh, sense of macroeconomics and what's going on in the world. Of course, the, I was very happy to hear his uh, take on the you know residential real estate area where he was basically talking about the dearth of of home uh, and residences for people that make this a longer runway for us, which uh, I've, I've been thinking that way myself, obviously, and that's a major part of why I do not anticipate changing my own investing thesis, you know, until otherwise, until conditions change significantly. But uh, that said, it is uh, something to think about, and I think debt is something that we all ought to be cognizant of. It's, um, you know, leverage. Uh, what is leverage? Leverage, we call a leverage, it's a tool, right? And a fool with a tool is still a fool. So at the end of the day, we have to make sure we know how to use that tool and we use it to our advantage and uh, don't uh, don't abuse it. Anyway, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. Uh, this is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. 
Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.